Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mayor Media Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest joining us all the way from uh, Her Majesty's great land of, uh, of Britain, London, uh, UK, the multiple names it has, uh, Professor Nicholas Sutton, who is a professor at uh, Oxford University, uh, University um, in Hindu studies. Um, he has quite a few, if you go to YouTube, he has quite a few uh, articles, videos that he has spent significant part of his life talking about Hinduism and uh, the scholarly pursuit of, of, of Hindu studies. So uh, Professor Sutton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, it's a pleasure. Uh, so um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you uh, started to go down the path of trying to wanting to study Hinduism coming from you know, uh, 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 English background. Yeah, I suppose it started when I was um, quite young, still a teenager. I went to um, India when I was 20. I went uh, overland, hitchhiked half the way, caught the buses that other way, went to uh, Amritsar, Benares, Kathmandu, Chennai, all the way around India, and was... Uh, fascinated by it and I've read quite a few of the books as well and that sparked off my interest and I was sort of looking for something that was um, authentic I suppose. Okay. I mean a lot of the things at that time, this is going back a few decades now, but there were a lot of Indian or quasi-Indian teachers around but they didn't seem to be, uh, they all seemed to be presenting their own ideas which were a bit non-specific. I um, was particularly drawn towards um, ISKCON, Hare Krishna's, mm -hmm. on the basis of that because they were um, uh, they were authentic. In other words, they used the actual mm -hmm. text and I really wanted to get right to the origins of it rather than some sort of flowery words that uh, New Age gurus were given. So I followed that path for a good number of years but ultimately I found that unsatisfactory primarily mm -hmm. because um, the fundamentalist approach to uh, sacred text and particularly mm -hmm. Bhagavat Puran there was an insistence that every word of it was absolute truth right uh, I found that very difficult to believe ultimately oh. so I drifted away from them and um, started to pursue uh, an academic Career, got my uh, degree and um, and then my PhD in Mahabharata, uh, a, a, a work, a, a thesis on the Mahabharata, and then from there worked in different universities, uh, lecturing in Hinduism. But I suppose I was always um, a little dissatisfied with the academic approach mm -hmm. to the study of religion, simply because what we were teaching, we were teaching about teaching students about the text, always telling you know, this is about the Bhagavad Gita, this is about Upanishads, this is about Shankaracharya. But I always thought we ought to go a bit further than that and try and learn a bit from it as well. Mm -hmm. Not not in a confessional way, but at least reflect on the significance of the subject matter for ourselves as individuals beyond just a purely, what I found to be a rather dry academic approach. Sure. It, it seemed to me that it wasn't what a lot of students were looking for, and it um, 
certainly what I wanted to get into those conversations about how significant is this, what sort of guidance does it give to uh, to us as, as, as people. Sure. Uh, and, and can we make use of this in our own lives rather than just saying, you know, 700 verses in the Gita, it says this yoga, that yoga, that yoga, mm -hmm. writing it, say on it, regurgitating that. I wanted to go a bit further in reflecting, and I always said that from the beginning in my interactions with the academic community. I remember even before I had my PhD, I made that point at conferences that we have to, to get full value from what we're studying. We have to go a bit further than just the kind of detached external viewer. We have to really enter into the material and, and, and reflect on it. Uh, that was an unpopular point of view right. in the community, but I never, um, I never lost sight of it. And, 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 and even when I was lecturing at university, I was simultaneously working with local Hindu communities, going into temples and community centers and, and really studying <coughs> from that more interactive uh, perspective, people who really wanted to understand their own tradition and, and to whom it meant a great deal in their lives. So, and then, uh, I mean, you said I work at Oxford University. I actually work for a specific institution within the context of Oxford University. The arrangement at Oxford is rather unusual. It's the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. Right. And um, at that time when I first going on 20 years ago now, I was working um, for Nottingham University and the Open University, which were good, steady jobs, which paid pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but I was also asked at the Oxford University, could you do something? We're thinking of doing courses within Hindu communities, and uh, we want you to put a course together on Hindu studies. And that, to me, was always what I'd wanted to do you know, working with individuals who wanted to learn from the texts as well yeah. as learn about them. In a sense, um, maintaining all the rigor of academic study, so not anything sort of weak or flaccid or anything like that, but really knowledge about it, but then going that little bit further and saying, how relevant do you think this is? Which, What do you think about that? How do you think you live in accordance with that? Or sure. what's quite a significance? And so, um, I really enjoyed that. Of course, the, uh, there wasn't any money in it, uh, so uh, I couldn't give up my other jobs. And, and, and it was really very demanding. We were, me and a couple of others from Oxford, were driving all around the country in my little car, yeah. uh, bouncing up and down. And we go to Ilford. And I know you, you're in California, which is huge, but even in England, we got good distance. And it was really demanding trying to get up to Leicester and then doing Birmingham and doing the other job as well. Sure. And uh, I suppose what really changed was about five or six years ago, I got uh, suffered a lot of health issues, bad health issues. I was mm -hmm. in hospital for a few months. And um, as a result of that, I had to give up all my other uh, regular university posts because I couldn't work day in, day out with them. But at the same time, um, it just so happened that the um, the courses we were doing at the Oxford Centre, mm -hmm. we started to put them online, and they were attracting a great deal of uh, interest internationally. Yeah. So, in a sense, it was a, a blessing because it enabled me to get out from a mode of teaching which I wasn't particularly enamoured of, and do things which I'd always been, as I said, you know. From, 20, 30 years ago, the way I understood um, 
religious studies should be not um, you know like uh, not confessional not teaching belief but asking mm -hmm. people they thought about it and working for the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies has enabled me to do that and it's opened up tremendous opportunities uh, that I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have had I wouldn't have done it because it was too much of a risk to put all my energy into that program and sure. it was uncertain whether people were going to take the courses and I might have been just out of work if I'd done it there but having that illness and being somewhat incapacitated enabled me to take that uh, that step and it's just been um, surprisingly successful somehow I got you know the publishing books and things like uh, things like that and uh, which I wouldn't have written otherwise so right. that's that's where where my background is now I'm not a preacher in the sense but I just give people the opportunity I said this is what Shankaracharya says this is yeah. what I says. what do you think let's discuss the interaction between them and see if we can come to some conclusions. What is the Gita telling us about our lives and right. it, does it affect how we live or things like that. So it, I find that very graphic. It's interesting for me. I learn a huge amount from it as well. Absolutely. I mean, um, there's a lot to unpack here because, I mean, uh, first of all, traveling on land from, from all the way from the, the corner of Europe to India must have been an insane journey of sorts, right? I mean, I, I, I can just imagine, you said you were a teenager at the time? I was 20, it, turned 20. You just turned 20, that's, especially, and I'm, I'm guessing this was, this had to be in like the 60s or 70s when this happened, right? It's 1974. Yeah, so that must have been crazy. I, I just can't imagine the amount of risks that involved. I mean, like, it, think people trying to do that today, it's, it would be very daunting. Uh, people would be so scared going across these borders, and I mean, you—how long did that journey take you? I mean, I, sorry if I'm being very uh, no, asking a lot of questions, but it's just interesting. Took me longer going out because um, I wanted to stop and visit these places. I spent a bit of time in Tehran, yeah, time in Kabul, in Afghanistan, Peshawar, Lahore. And it wasn't so dangerous as it is now. It was before the kind of um, tension between Islamic movements in the Western world was at its height. And Afghanistan was actually, um, I liked Afghanistan. The people were pretty fair with us. You know, they were decent. You know, you, you knew where you stood with them. Uh, Pakistan was a bit hairy. I found up in the West uh, on the Afghan border around the Kabul Gorge and the Khyber Pass, but Lahore was uh, really nice, lovely people there. Yeah. And then getting to Amritsar, I remember getting off the train, off the bus in Amritsar. You couldn't get across the border in those days, so we had to get kind of uh, walk to the border from the Pakistan end and get into India. And uh, I remember getting into Amritsar and thinking, this feels just like home. I remember <laughs> scales on the station that was made in Birmingham, my hometown. Avery scales and feeling, yeah, this is uh, this feels familiar somehow. So yeah, and we went all the way down the south as well. I remember, and I'm so glad I did it in those days because, um, I mean, uh, I'm going to India again shortly, and I, sure. I've been many times since. Uh, and in many ways, it's much better. But in those days, it was, um, I don't know, it was much much more Indian than it is now. I remember going to Tiruvannantapuram, Trivandrum, and they were just. Now it's big dual carriageways, and then it was just full of bullet carts, and yeah. uh, it just felt really, really Indian, which was great in some sense, but also made you feel really homesick for a young kid. <laughs> so, like, 
when you decide when you left uh, London in in the seventies, did you decide? or not sorry, London because I don't, I don't know where you're from, but um, England. Did you decide that you wanted to go to India, or was it just like a that you somehow meandered your way down there, or was it? I only intended to go to India. I wanted to find out about India. I'd read the Gita, I'd read the Upanishads, and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. This is it. What it struck me, you know, in that time, a lot of people, as they are now, were yeah. very disenchanted with the materialism of Western society. The Vietnam War was on, and it seemed morally bankrupt. And we're just looking for some some alternative, you know, you looked at political movements, communist movements, but when you read the Gita, it was yeah. like a philosophical counterculture, if you like, and so I was really thrilled to find this well-stated alternative to materialism. And I suppose it was a bit of a shock when I got to India. <laughs> I was first going around and saying, oh, there's the one with the elephant's head, there's the one with the, uh, yeah. the idea about real lived Hinduism. We thought it was you know, it's all uh, philosophy and people sitting around talking about Upanishads and things right. like But right. uh, at the same time, it was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, yeah, I was drawn to it. And that's what I, again, I've got to really get to the heart of this and find out um, what it's really all about. And I, I feel the same today. I, I constantly am reading just for teaching and for my own pleasure. And constantly coming up with ideas and thinking, wow, that's... Um, uh, reflecting on that, you know, I walk a lot, yeah. take about two or three walks a day, and I've usually got some passage or something in my mind and mulling it over, thinking, what yeah. is this? why is this significant? How does this reflect on the way I live my life? And I've learned so much from it. In fact, I'd say I've shaped my life around it, particularly in recent years since I had a, a brush with mortality. It right. made, that really focuses the mind, and I think carefully about um you know, what you're doing in the world, what you're contributing to the world, and right. how you live. It helps you understand yourself, actually. So how long did you spend on this uh, journey um, when you were young? A few months, actually. Yeah, obviously, it was quite a long time, but I have to say, I got, I don't know, do you, you know Kerala at all, down in the mm -hmm. south? No. Yeah, well, we got to Trivandrum, and... I had no money for a plane ticket. I knew I had oh, to Oh, Kerala, yes. I know Kerala well, yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, Trivandrum. Oh, yeah, to love it. The, the, the big temple, the Padmanamaswami temples there. That's right. They won't let us in there, of course. They're really yeah. No white fellows in there. Uh, anyway, um, I remember being there, and uh, I'd got a train ticket to get, right. get out somewhere, and uh, the trains were all cancelled for a few days, and I just said to the... Um, I said to the station master, what's going on here? This is a bit stupid, no trains. And he got really angry with me and he said, don't you dare call me stupid and this and that. And a huge crowd of people gathered around. And I have to say, I just, uh, I sat down and wept. I said, <laughs> I just, uh, at the Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept. Well, I can give my version is on Trivandrum Station, I sat down and wept. Oh. And at that point, I, I just felt so homesick. Yeah. Uh, just because it was 20, you know, you think you're an adult, but you're really a, a child in many right. ways. Right. And then I just thought, we've got to, I want to go home. I want to be somewhere that's familiar and uh, and, and that. So we, we came back pretty quickly, actually, all the yeah. way across in, in the wind. There was probably about four or five months, I think, altogether we were away from home. I mean, I mean that, 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 that trip must have shaped much of your understanding of, of the world at that time, I would imagine. Right, because I mean, you've probably seen more 
of of India and and much much of the way to get there than most people have in their entire lifetimes in in, in the span of a few months. Possibly so, but I I would say that you know that in many ways, if you just take a book like the Gita and you yeah. sit for the same length of time, you read it carefully, bit by bit by bit, that can have just as profound an effect on you as traveling. I think a lot of people, particularly these days, young people, they go backpacking around. Right. Experiences that um, many of them don't interact with the people and culture at all. They yeah. have traveler communities and traveler cafes, traveler hangouts, and they hang out together, but they don't really get anywhere into the culture and the people. And right. uh, so, I, you know, when I go to India, what I love best of all is meeting people and chatting yes. to them about their lives and. You know, I talk to fishermen and the dangers. Where I talk to uh, Katakali dancer ones, a long yeah. chap. How you get to be a Katakali dancer? Talking to priests in temples. How do you get to be a priest? What do you have to do? And and that all that sort of thing. That's what I really really enjoy. And I feel sometimes some of the travellers around there, they kind of put a a ring around themselves and they have their own communities, and they don't really find out what India's uh, actually going on there. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with your travel philosophy. Like when I travel, I've traveled quite extensively through pretty much all of India except for maybe East India. Um, I just, I just love spending time with the people locally and getting to know their customs, their ideas, and 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 because it, it, it really dispels a lot of notions about what you think about people and how they would appear to be. Because there's so much more depth to them. Um, and this, and and that, and I find when I travel and I see other people traveling. Like you said, they just like to be. It's like they want to see something, but not mm -hmm. be part of it. They don't want to like like really imbibe the culture, the experience right. of, of it all. Perhaps it's a little threatening to uh, yeah. put yourself out on a limb like that. But I mean, I like going around. I often get invited to people's houses, and I like to go around and uh, and uh, and just have a cup of tea and chat and find out what they do, what their lives are like, how much money they earn, and uh, yeah. What are and all that sort of thing is, uh, and I, I just see. So I think it's a shame sometimes young people they're sitting in their kind of traveler hotels mixing with other travelers and they're not yeah. getting the, yeah. the value out of it that they would. I find it a little bit, sometimes a little bit kind of offensive and condescending. You know, but uh, but but I, I think it's uh, people's mentality nowadays. It, it's I've earned this time away from work. I just want to enjoy it. I don't need to deal with the stress of regular people everywhere else. I just want to do my thing and see the things I want to see. I mean, there's a value to that position, but I think it 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 it, it really just detracts away from from growing as an individual and and growing your own mind. And and if if that's what the goal is, the work one of the goals, I think it's important to engage with difference. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose when I went, I never, I didn't know if I was ever going to come back. I didn't know what I was. <laughs> I had no career in mind. I, got, you know, I didn't want to be in an office and, and doing that. I didn't want any of, any of that. And to be fair, I've never had a proper job. I don't think. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I've done labouring work to get a bit of money. You know, yeah. dug railways and worked in warehouses and stuff. Always, you know, get get enough money and do something else that you want to do. Never had a career trajectory in in any way at all. And, right. It's so very what, in that sense to escape from that. So very when did you when did you start um, your association with ISKCON then? It was uh, it with India or did you come back and then uh, find your connection with them? I came, 
and I was reading books and I picked up one of one or two of their books. I love the fact that, you know, it's got the Sanskrit in word by word yeah. Sanskrit. I wanted to learn the Sanskrit and I met the guru, um, Prabhupada. Yeah. I saw him a few times when he was in London and um, it just impressed me. I thought, um, I mean, not everything about Iskon is impressive by any means. Yeah. And I, I would say after he died in particular, it went seriously off rails but not in, I don't want to speak badly of it because it, it gave me a huge amount but I was very impressed by him I thought wow this is really a, a, an authentic teacher of Sanskrit wisdom because he was so learned you know when he when yeah. he, he spoke he would go through the text word by word and he'd then quote uh, passages from Upanishads which um, w which tied in with what he was saying and it right. just seemed like he was the real thing, and I'm sure he was actually. Also, he was very humorous. Probably. I loved his sense of humor. He always come out with real quips, quick responses if anybody asked him awkward questions and something like that. After he died, it it, it got problematic. A little yeah. Bit. But um, uh, for me, it wasn't that, that that made me left. It was just you know confronting myself on a daily basis. Do I believe? Do I want to believe? that everything in a book, however sacred, is word-for-word word truth. Sure. And it doesn't appear to make sense to me. I have to believe it. And I just thought, I'm not being honest with myself. I don't right. think that book I don't believe in anymore. So I, I thought I can't really uh, stay here in, 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 in the movement. But I've got no antagonism at all oh, yeah. towards it. And in fact, <laughs> when I look back at the opportunities it gave me being in there, I mean, I... Um, I used to write plays. I acted on I've acted on stages in front of a thousand people. I've uh, travelled in a van from one place to another doing plays. I started a school, taught in a school, you know, just doing things that. Yeah. Uh, I ran a business, uh, incense business for a while. <laughs> you never do uh, in the ordinary world, you know. So it was tremendously um, exciting and, and not really really nice people as well. Oh, absolutely. You got the, you know, sometimes you get the impression that in a religious movement like that, it's all very stony faced. But certainly the people I used to associate that with used to, used to have such a laugh a lot of the time. It was so humorous. Uh, and so I mean, it was mainly just I couldn't accept that the dogmatism, I suppose. Sure. I mean, I, I like growing up in, in Los Angeles um, or Orange County, my dad actually, in, he came to the U.S. in the 70s or early 70s. Um, he actually met Prabhupada a few times in the Venice Temple, right? Because yeah. one of the, I think the first big temple that they had was in Venice. Um, yeah. And uh, I was, I loved going to Iskon temples because I, I just loved the the art in the in in the in, in their Bhagavatam was beautiful and, mm. and they had great artwork and, and the food was fantastic and the people were very nice. It was I guess it was one of the first times where I actually saw, to be honest, <clears throat> non-Indian people in a Hindu context. And it was it was actually at that point where it made a little more sense to me growing up that oh these the 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 religion or whatever that my, my parents have taught me is much more universal than just mm. us people in India practicing it. Um, and it was just, um, I loved it. Cause I mean, we come from a Vaishnavite background. So for, yeah. for, for us, it was easy for me to connect to the Krishna aspect of, of uh, Prabhupada. So like, my, to be honest, my first real uh, engagement with anything Hindu to in terms of uh, either uh, intellectual or academic pursuit was probably in high school when I read 
the Gita probably for the first time using the Bhagavad Gita as it is, right? All right, um, yeah. And, and, and that to me was really interesting. Um, it gave me, because I think the way he wrote it, it was very similar in, in, in the way he, he wanted to approach, I guess, Christians in some sense, and, and the text kind of reflects that. I, I, I get that feeling because it's a very different translation and the way you the way he translates certain words to connect more with the western audience than if you were to take a book from i guess like you know like the the gita basha that i have or shankara basha it's a very different audience that it's aimed towards okay um so i mean it was it was interesting to me because i, I can actually use that when i was talking to my catholic friends to show similarities because the the text of as it is was similar to the way that maybe they would understand their the New Testament in, in some in, in some corollaries. But I mean, as I grew in my Gita and Mahabharata understanding, it, it, the as it is did not maintain its same level of of primacy in in, in my translation world. Um, especially as I got more and more uh, proficient in Sanskrit, uh, it became much more back uh, a book that I had. Because I, I also interacted a lot with ISKCON people on ca campuses, and it was very, uh, the, the, the proselytization was very kind of in your face, which I, I did not think was, it was very something I was not used to from the Hindu context. So no, was, I, I think with, with the, um, the Bhagavad Gita as it is, yeah, it's, it's a Sampradaya perspective. Yeah. Not a, um, some of the translations, I'm going to be careful, I'm not going to criticize it, because it, but just that it's a Sampradaya perspective. So, for example, I think in that one, they translate Karma Yoga as devotional service. Yeah. Which isn't really what Krishna is saying. It, yeah, it's I agree. Only, it's only, that's from a very specific Sampradaya perspective. And what I've tried to do, um, you know, I've just got out this one, I've my own notes yes. on the Bhagavad Gita. I don't know if you've seen it, but what I've done, sorry, that's a pretty shameless plug. Sorry. No, no, I, I, see, I have, I, I've, just, I've ordered it. I haven't received it yet, so but okay. that's... A... <laughs> I mean, what I've tried to do in that one is just to use the different commentaries and say, this is how Shankara reads this verse. Yeah. This is reads it. This is the different ways it can be understood. And sometimes I make a comment like, in this case, I think Shankara seems to be closer to the spirit of the Gita. And maybe, as you said, Madhvacharya may be a little bit difficulty with this chapter. Yeah. But then again, there's chapters where Madhva seems to be right on the ball. Yeah. So just helping to people to understand it from um, different perspectives. Because I, I really think with the, the study of the Gita is uh, very much of an individual pursuit. Oh, yeah, it is. It's about, um, this is the point I make about sacred texts. And I think what's particularly important for me from a Hindu perspective as opposed to say a Christian or a Muslim perspective. I think for Christians and Muslims the Bible and certainly the Quran they are authoritative, they're telling yeah. the truth and, and, and there's an obligation on you to accept their superior wisdom whereas I find with the Gita and so many of the other books what, what I regard them as they are sources of inspiration. Yeah. They're, they're not masters or dictators they're kind of friends guides and helpers as each individual pursues you along the way and some person might read certain chapters of the Gita and get nothing from it at all it's interesting but it doesn't inspire me another person will read another passage or even another book 
mm-hmm. and that's really life-changing. So I think that's what it is. You've got the, you know, looking at my shelves, and here I've got uh, volumes and volumes of books, and they're just all friends and helpers, and no obligation. I can pull one, read it, and think, right. yeah, that's really something that's important to me. And then another person will pull the same book down and read it, absolutely nothing. That's okay. Go back and find another one and see what that does for you. So I, I, that's what I find. It's, it's inspirational, but right. it's not dogmatic and dictatorial. So, so let me ask. Let me ask you this: Do you think uh, that difference between uh, the way they approach of scripture to Islam and Christianity, and I guess Hinduism, uh, quote unquote, would be based on the pramanas? Because, like, in some sense, right? Like the the shabda pramana isn't necessarily. It depends uh, again on your framework. Like if. Uh, like Shankara himself says a comment in his in this sutra uh, Avasha that you know if the even if the text says the fire is hot uh, cold if it's if I touch it and it's hot I have to not believe the text right that the text itself takes a, a secondary role to either pratyaksha right your first person experience of something I, I mean I, I I'm just kind of thinking out loud and, and seeing what your thoughts are on this well. I think, you know, with the Shabda Praman, which I presume everyone is listening, yeah. that's the way of gaining knowledge from reliable testimony. Yeah, I mean, we can maybe mention of what I consider to be the three principal Pramans that all yeah. accept, also, which are Prachaksha, perception through the senses, yeah. uh, logical inference based on uh, yeah. perception, and then Shabda Praman, which is testimony. And, and I think Shankara does say, though, that um, for higher matters, that, yes. uh, then you have to rely on Shabda Pramant. The problem is the word reliable testimony. How do I know, how can I be certain that Upanishads are, are absolute truth? Maybe they're not. How do I know whether they were revealed from a higher source right. or whether they were just written down by some some mystic in India a few thousand years ago. I've got no way of being certain on that, and it does require a leap of faith. And therefore, I find I've just recently been working on Shaivism quite a lot, Mm -hmm. and and I think Shaivism is a really neglected area of Indian thought. Not There's not much written about it, there's not much done, but it's really, really so important. It adds so much to um, the, the whole field of Indology and Indian studies, but Shaivism makes the point that you can't learn the truth from a guru, the words of a guru can't enlighten, the words of a text can't enlighten, Mm -hmm. that's all Savikalpa Gyan, true knowledge is only within you, it's already there, and and it's just a matter of um, removing the mala, particularly the anava mala, the self-centeredness that coats our knowing and then knowledge comes from within not in the sense of logical reasoned knowledge sequential reasoning but just really a state of knowingness just that kind of knowledge which is what knowledge of the higher truth is and I think the problem sometimes is we want to confine this higher knowledge within a rational framework right Analysis and uh, I'll just read one verse which I was reading the other day. And um, this is from the Kulanava Tantra, and it's chapter 1, verse 110. It, it says, um, Advaitam kechidik chanti. Some people favor Advaitam. Dvaitam ik chanti chapare. Others favor Dvaita. 
This is Shiva speaking. Mama tattvam na jananti. No, they don't like have truth about me. Why? Dvaita Dvaita Bivarjitam. I am beyond both. Yeah, yeah. Dvaita. So in other words, what he's saying is all these logical arguments which the philosophical texts indulge in, they're never going to get you that shivgyan. Yeah. That comes not from reasoning or, or anything like that. So that's what he says. And uh, again, in the Karnataka Shaivism, Alama Prabhu, one of their great teachers, argues that... Um, the only value of the text is that it might provide a spark, an inspiration, a direction right. that will enable you to tap into that state of knowingness that is already within you. But don't think that you can study books and learn it in that way. The books are only valuable for personal inspiration. So I've been, you know, that's what I'm saying. I do this um, usually in the evenings. I read and I find things and, make, and then I think about it and it makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it's in uh, what you read is very similar from the Upanishads you would say. Yato vacham divartante aprapya manasasaha, right? You know, whatever the, 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 what the, where thought cannot follow, right? Or speech cannot go, thought cannot follow. Yeah. It's the sense of just having the experience of a Brahman or reality or the intuitive knowledge in and of itself is more important than our ability to converse it or think about it or engage in some sort of. Uh, Fantastic. That was just a Kano Upanishad, wasn't it? You yeah, just, that was Kano Upanishad, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that, that's one of my favorite Upanishads. And it, um, uh, what I love about that is when the student comes to the guru. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. That was a little No, weird. no, 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 it's fine. When the student comes, you know the Kano Upanishad in the first yeah. chapters, the guru he says, teach me about Brahman. Yeah. The guru says, that, as you said, the mind cannot go there, words cannot describe it. Yeah. Therefore, I have nothing to say to you about Brahman. And I think that the wonderful there is, is the abnegation of the power relationship, which kind of corrupts religion. Yeah. I've seen it in ISKCON and other religious movements. As soon as you get a power structure and a hierarchy, then corruption and anavamala, that sense of self-importance. Yes destroys it but the guru there in that context he doesn't go for any of that and he talks of brahmana's pratibodha viditam you know that in the second chapter of that yes pratibodha viditam it's known by pratibodha which i've translated uh, we do a course on the king of Parishad, actually <laughs> I, i'd say that's like awakened knowledge yeah. knowing awakening pratibodha like the buddha as opposed to um the ordinary knowledge that we acquire just from rational reasoning and studying and learning and passing exams. Interesting as well, the Shiva Sutras, the Kashmir Shaivite Yeah, text. yeah. You know that Shiva Sutras. The second sutra of that I, is... I don't know uh, very well, so, yeah. Uh, well, it says, Jnanam Bodaha. Knowledge is bondage. Yeah. In other words, and I think what that... Well, I've read Shema Raj's commentary on it, but he said, makes the point that... Uh, if we get bound up in this logical, yes. theological, doctrinal, creedal approach to knowledge, then that's bondage. So therefore, jnanam bodhaha, you have to go beyond that to experience the uh, the real truth will come. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, we're getting into a, a deeper conversation. I want to get back to it, but I want to talk more a little bit more about the, the Gita and okay. and kind of like, it's kind of important in your life and and because I, mean, I mean for me like the most important text that i i always go to all the time is mahabharata I, I find it to be the 
I want I don't want to say the panacea for everything, but it, it's a way for me to think. It actually is a dialogue for me with the text a lot. I I, I love spending the where where a lot of people hate the didactic portions like Shanti Parva, Anushasan Parva. I'm obsessed with them. I think it's the really yeah. I think it's the the deepest way to engage with with our moral conundrums about how to treat one another, the the futility of war, a problem with with letting our baser emotions get control of us. And also the flip side is when we need to be maybe mean or, or cruel or 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 do a dharma for dharma. I mean, it's so complex. It, 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 I love the the intricacy of it, the subtlety of it, and the fact it doesn't leave you with the answer. It really wants you to sit and engage with it over and over and over again. And that's what I find. So, so Mahabharata to me is that text. And the Gita in some sense is like a a tiny a micro microcosm of that i think it, yep. it, it, yeah I, I agree completely i've always, i've thought of the mahabharata in some ways as like a conference on yeah. subject where different voices come different speakers come and put their different point of view yeah i think the there is one of the main speakers in yeah. that conference but it's certainly not the the only voice to been i agree with you entirely about the uh the Mahabharata has been the principle. Actually, it's interesting me because I was asked, I'll mention it, but Wiley Blackwell asked me to write an article on the Mahabharata for their companion to world literature. Uh -huh. And he called it Mahabharata, India's Great Scripture. And I also said it was the intellectual and spiritual property of the Hindu community and should be acknowledged as such. So they didn't like my article. They, <laughs> they rejected it on the basis when I was pandering to Hindutva to India right. by saying it was the property of the Hindu community. And secondly, they said it's never been regarded as a scripture. It's a, it's a kind of epic or a history. Uh, yeah. it, 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 the text itself calls itself the, you know, the, the Panchamaveda. The, it, it, it goes into that very concept I, I, of... of it, it, I don't want to kind of uh, recruit you from my side. But I mean, also Shankara Ramanuj in their yeah. commentary voting uh, anyway but I agree with you completely and I think what you know I, I've looked at them I've written quite a lot on the Mahabharata and um, it strikes me you've got this tension haven't you between the, the worldly ethics of the Kshatriya Dharma and then you've got what you might call the virtue ethics of Yudhishthira Kshatriya Dharma Hapapusti are like dogs around a piece of meat showing their teeth and everything there's nothing more degraded that but at the same time you sometimes you feel you need to be a bit of kshatriya like yeah uh, is being molested by kichaka yeah. she goes dished here and says help me he says we got to tolerate the miseries of this world and things and then she goes to bima and says help me this man's rapist molesting me and bima kind of yeah there's the Kshatriya thing, and so it's, so it plays you, doesn't it? It shows you, have a look at this. What do you think about this? Yeah, you like that? Well, then have a look at this. Exactly. But even like the character of Krishna, even though he is considered God, he, in some sense, is just as flawed as everyone else in in the way he his the way he acts when, for example, Godotchka is killed. He, you know, people don't the people don't bring this up, but he dances. In 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 you know Karnaparva where he's dancing and right after and, and this is his like Bhima's son and this nephew and he he tells him I'm destroying all these people he's joyous about it or when he tells Arjuna the the story of the 
of uh, to, to kill Drona, he tells him the story of the 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 ascetic who's in the forest meditating, and he takes who take the vow of truth, and then you have the the family come by, and then the robbers follow them. He tells them the truth. They kill the family, and he gets the papa of of that because he chose what his dharma of satya over ahimsa and or whatever. So it's just the characters themselves are fascinating because to me they they are relatable, but it, it's it's also that they're they recognize that to be living, to be in the world, to if any way any god even exists on this planet will have to be playing in the realm of duality and being imperfect. It just like everyone else in some sense. I mean, it's interesting, you know, because you know when Yudhishthir is um, at the end and the uh, Svagarohan Parvan, yeah, Yudhishthir has to see hell because hell. he did one one wicked deed in his life, and that one wicked deed was the Ashpatam and the elephant bit. Yeah, right now. he said that he, he deceived the opposition, so that was his one sin. But Krishna told him to do that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so his one sin was following the uh, instruction of the deity. And I think what you've got there then is a sort of collision between the the bhakti, the devotionalism, and the dharma strand of Mahabharata. Thought that, that, that that tension there is highlighted. So you mentioned Krishna as being. Uh, a kind of flawed character, but how is that? He's he's the supreme deity. He's God on earth. There's no one superior. Yeah. He says, um, what is that in chapter 9, verse 9? Uh, he's untouched, isn't yeah. it? Uh, untouched by any karma. So he's, he's, he's not flawed in that sense. What, I don't know. Do you have any explanation for that? Or? Well, I mean, my explanation is is when um, I connected to a, a state that he makes after the war, when I think this is uh, in Street Pavan. I'm not entirely sure exactly, but I remember this, where he's on his way home from from uh, Kurukshetra Dwaraka, and he, he meets Uttanka, right? And he meets Uttanka. that, yeah, right. and then and Uttanka is about to curse him um, for allowing, you are God, you, you know, you allowed this entire destruction of all these beings to happen, you could have stopped it. And, and he responds by just saying, when I'm born amongst human beings, I behave and act like a human being. When I'm born amongst the Nagas, I behave like a Naga, Nakshita, He limits himself to the to the form and species or the, the extent of the world that it is. So to me, in, in that sense, that's how I connect it to. I'm saying when he, if Krishna is God, he took form in, 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 in human form and behaves in the human world or the, the world that we live in, by definition, while he's in that world, which is not pure itself, even though he might be untouched by that uh, uh, impurity, he still has to engage in it. I think, I, I, again, reading from the Gita, um, you know, there's a, a dvandra, isn't there? A duality yeah. between dharma and adharma. Yeah. He speaks of the karma yogi as dvanvatitaha. He's above dvanda. So Krishna... For us who are on this, the level of this world, yeah. there's Papa and Punya, Dharma and Dharma. Yeah. That's the way we have to interact with the, the world around us. But Krishna's not, he's in this world, but not of this world. Exactly. I think. He's utterly transcendent. So when we, we can't judge him by the standards by, uh, by which we judge people of this world, because he's not of this world. He's utterly transcendent. I think that's one 
explanation for it. So what is sinful for you and me, for Krishna, he's never touched by that because he's not of the world of sin. Also because practically sometimes the ethics of, of Kshatriya Dharma are doing what you have to do. Krishna says, I think at one point, you know that story where Arjun's about to kill Yudhishthir because Yudhishthir... Yeah, the, the, the yeah he, he made a comment on Gandiva, right? He made a, a, a promise that if anyone made a comment about Gandiva, I'll kill them. <laughs> That's right, and then Yudhishthir <laughs> makes them come. And then uh, Krishna, when he's about it, Krishna comes up and gives him a right telling off about uh, that. But he says, um, Dharma is for the maintenance of the upliftment of all human, of all living beings. Right. I haven't got the exact verse here. It's in one of the books I've got. But um, therefore, I say whatever is beneficial towards living beings, that is dharma. Yes. So what he's saying is that his 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 deceit of uh, of Ashford, uh, his yeah his deceit of Drona, yeah, was was telling a lie, but. Um, at the same time, it brought benefit to living beings because it ensured the victory of the Pandavas. Therefore, it was Dharma in that right. circumstance. He tells a story there, maybe you know, about the, the Rishi called Kaushika. Yeah. He would take a vow to always tell the truth, and robbers came, and the villagers were hiding. Yeah, it, the, it's, yeah, I just cave. said that, yeah. yeah so, village, he says, they're in the cave, and they all get killed. And then yeah. Krishna says, lying was Dharma in that case. Telling the truth was, uh, was a Dharma. I also read... Recently, I'm just trying to, I think it's Lingapuran I was reading, mm -hmm. and it, it defines satya. It said that satya isn't just the absolute veracity of the words you speak, but it also you have to bear in mind the consequences of what you say. So yeah. if you something that is factually true but harms others, that's not satya. And likewise, you can say something which may be factually untrue, but if it brings benefit, then that's satyam as well. It's a rather subtle take, and I think that's what Krishna regards satyam as as well. It's not just a, a bland statement of, of, of factual truth. It's yeah. a consideration of um, the effect of the words that you speak as well. So, again, I'm often reading these things, and I think, wow, that's something that's really uh, to be thought about, to be contemplated about, something to learn from, if you like. And that's what I love about Hinduism, really. It teaches me in a non-didactic way. It helps yeah. me understand myself, I think. But anyway, I agree with you about the Mahabharata. It's the ultimate example of that non-didactic approach, isn't it? It almost plays with you. What do you think about this? What about bhakti? What about, um, uh, you know, what about dharma, adharma, shakriya dharma, etc.? But I think it's it's funny because it's those portions that are, are didactic right, that become non-didactic to us because where the like the, the text is having uh, i i think it's the way i've always approached the text it's a living text insofar as it's actually a, a, a conversation between you and the text and 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 all these ideas because it's never like what bishma is telling yudhishthira what dharma is there's so many different things through the text that shows the other uh, the other truth of what it's what it's not or what it how it's different in other ways and it wants you to grapple with those things as as the reader because i think because the way they layered the text uh, you know from starting with the the larger jenna story to, to all all the way down i think the the largest story is the story between us and the text or because it's a it's a the, or the tradition and within that 
story is the story of Johnny Bay Jan and each of those. So it's like we're still part of that text and and fighting it and arguing it and and being a part of it as just like Brahman is outside of us mm-hmm. looking in, uh, looking in onto this or inside of us, wherever you want to see that. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned the uh, you know like the Shanti Parvan Anushashi yeah, I agree with you. And in fact, I'm just today. I've been working on that. I'm, uh, I'm fortunate that Mandala, who publish our books in the states, um, mm-hmm. they've agreed to publish. I've been working on a translation of the, uh, you know, the second part of Shanti Parvan, which is the uh, the Moksha Dharma part. Moksha Dharma, yeah. Yeah, which is um, sadly neglected, I think, in most yeah. studies. It's such an important area, as important as the Upanishads, I would say. Yeah. Because the Upanishads give us the exposition of Vedanta, but Sankhya and Yoga is such an important strand of Indian thought as well. And the foundational texts that we have access to, they're all in the Mahabharata, in the Shanti Parvan, a little bit in the um, Anugita as well, but yeah. mainly Shanti Parvan. And um, so I've been working on that. I've got volume one of the. Um, of the Moksha Dharma is complete. It's it's ready to go. And then today I've been just starting off on the volume two, the Shukana Prashna, which is a longish passage. And then you've got the Vaishnavism of the Naranarayaniam as well. Yeah. If you get one of the abbreviated, I've seen these abridged versions of the Mahabharata. It keeps the Shanti in about four or five pages. Which really. is terrible. Which <laughs> which which to me, like I, I know people, a lot of people, especially like the older school Indologists. Uh, probably like the German and and uh, probably even into the early modern era, they thought that the, like the Shanti Parva and Shasta Parva were just superfluous, just people just you know just talking and it was a bunch of nonsense. But when like when a practitioner or even a person in the tradition spends time with it, and even I think even an outsider who actually wants to engage with, I wouldn't say a philosophical system, but a conversation that has high levels of philosophy in it. Mm-hmm. The, those texts are so pivotal to understanding the larger corpus of what Indian and Hindu and, and maybe even some level Buddhist mm-hmm. concepts of, of dharma and ethics and morality and, and tradition come from. Because, I mean, I mean, the Mahabharata in its entirety is the storehouse of pretty much everything that India had known up until that point and passed on forth uh, uh, throughout time afterwards. I think I mean, what's interesting, I suppose, is again the, the different views that come into it. I, again, I go back to that point about the Mahabharata being a, a conversation. I think yeah. it's very important because it, it kind of brings up a reconciliation. When I wrote 20, well, 2000, a book called Religious Doctrines in the Mahabharata, I wrote about ethics. I suggested that as you've got Yudhishthira ethics, which is the ethics of pure virtue, yeah. you've got the Kshatriya Dharma ethics, which is the warrior ethos of Bhishma and others. And then you've got the Moksha Dharma as well, which is a, a third form of Dharma. I suggested at that time that Krishna rejects the Yudhishthira ethics when he says, Klaibhyam Masmaka Mahaparta, in the beginning, don't don't play the eunuch, if you like, be, yeah. uh, be manly. And I, think, I, I used to think, well, that's Krishna... Um, rejecting that, but it, well, what Krishna, of course, does do, he, he reconciles the Kshatriya Dharma with the Moksha Dharma and shows that when it's done uh, without selfish desire, Kshatriya Dharma then becomes a form of yoga, a form of Moksha Dharma. 
but I think I was wrong when I wrote that because I think what Krishna does with um, Yudhishthir ethics is mm -hmm. he shows that Yudhishthir ethics, vir pure virtue ethics, is integral to the moksha dharma. You can't yes. do the moksha dharma without first getting to that stage of Yudhishthir. And again, I say that when I'm thinking sometimes, there's a verse from the Gita, maybe you know it, um, chapter 7, verse 28, yesham tvantagatam papam jananam punya kormanam te dvanvamoha nirmukta bhajante maan dhridavartaha. Thinking about that when so I was out walking you know, mm -hmm. around, around here, people must think I'm a bit odd actually sometimes. I'm in <laughs> Uh, I try to, you know, stop if someone's coming, uh, so as not to appear completely uh, eccentric. But um, yeah, tvantakatam papam, your papa, your wicked activities mm -hmm. are given up. Antagatam, and then punya uh, karmanam. Then, you, yeah. but not only are you not doing harmful, wicked things, but you're also doing righteous things. Right. And that's the formation then in the second verse. Um, what is that? Yesham Tantakatampapanjinanampunyakarman They follow the path of higher knowledge to go become free from the dualities and also they go into bhakti as well, bhajanti mamdhritabhrataha. So in that we're seeing what Krishna's doing there is he's showing, you know, Antakatampapam, Jinanampunyakarmanam, that's Yudhishthir virtue ethics, yeah. which he establishes as the absolutely essential platform for the moksha dharma. You can't do moksha dharma unless you absorb the Yudhishthir ethics. And that's why I think that the, the, the Mahabharata and the Gita's treatise on dharma is absolutely fundamental. I was given a talk um, a few months ago now at mm -hmm. the, one of the local temples here, the Balaji temple. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a big South Indian style temple. They have a youth there. And I was talking to one of the young leaders of it before and, I, and he said to me Hinduism is just about being a good person and I was thinking yeah that sounds a bit kind of nothing doesn't yeah. it yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that, that being a good person is um, such a fundamental truth because to be a good person you've got to have a wholesale transformation of consciousness away from that self-centeredness yeah towards you know what Krishna saying about it. Um, uh, loka sangraha peace. Yoga shema loka sangraha. Yeah. Yeah, loka sangraha. You've got to be thinking about the well-being of the world. That's another message that comes through so clearly in the opening chapters of the Gita. That you may yeah. be a stick, you may be spiritually inclined. That doesn't mean you go away and, and ignore the world. You've got to be active in the world. Right. Sangraham to bring benefit to all people. It's a spirituality for the Gita is an active process in which you are in, engaged in the world for the benefit of all. So that's why I think that in fact I was wrong when I wrote about it those years ago that the Moksha Dharma yeah. incorporates the Yudhishthir virtue Dharma and you can't do the Moksha Dharma without the virtue Dharma. So isn't is it the in chapter 17 the in the Gita the Daivi Sampada, isn't that also virtue? Like, you know, uh, Ahimsa, Satya, Makrodha, isn't that all that virtue, kind of the virtue that, that Yudhishthira, and, and Krishna even talks about in, in, the, in that chapter, right? What people should aspire to, these are the qualities that you should, yeah. be, should be following, right? In, in, that, in that sense. 
Yeah, exactly what is it? Abhayam Sattva Sangsudhi, Jnana Yoga Vyavastiti, Dhanam, giving charity, Jogyascha, Tapas Ahimsa, Satyam, Akroda, yeah, maybe some people don't know the sanctuary, but Dayabhuteshu is compassion for all living all, beings. All beings, yeah. Yeah, just having that mood of compassion. You know, that you might say, well, that's just being a good person, like that young fellow was saying, but in fact, it's uh, wholly transformatory in a spiritual sense, so that you feel compassion, not just as a kind of ethical precept that you feel duty bound to follow but it's instinctive you see suffering you, yeah. it, and you hurt because of the other's suffering and that's what moksha dharma is about that transformation of of, of consciousness away from self-focus to the focus of, of the world and as well you know you'll know that um it's demonstrated that what those first three verses of chapter 16 say is moksha dharma because Krishna says in verse 5 daivi sampad vimokshaya so that the sampad he analyzes those qualities ahimsa, doyabhuteshu, chapti helping people, compassion for all living beings, being free of greed that's the moksha dharma as well and that's why now when I think I, I can see that really Yudhishthir sorry Krishna doesn't reject Yudhishthir's virtue ethics but he actually is showing and uh, that it's part of the moksha dharma that he teaches. I don't know why I didn't see that at the time, but I knew those verses, but that's the way it works with the Gita, yeah. is you suddenly something, you've, you've read those things, you know, four, five, ten times, and suddenly it slaps you in the face again. Wow, I, I, I hadn't really thought about it. It's not just a one-off reading, it's a, it, it's a lifetime course of instruction absolutely i mean like you, you the comment about diabutishu again it connects with that with that statement he made earlier in the gita vidya vinaya sampanne right if you see all beings as being you know vasudeva sarvamiti or the same as all, all beings how you're going to inherently feel compassion and connection to all to everything and you have to not just have that compassion, but you have to act it out in dana, in asati, in in ahimsa, right? All these things have to be. It, it, it's it's a matrix of like that's so entangled, right? Like like he says again, uh, he's all these things are tied to him like the sutra, right? Sutra manigana right? All things yeah. sit upon him. So all these qualities, I think, sit upon the Gita in the same way. They're all tangled up together. And you can find links within even the text where he talks about later in, in formal. Yeah, I was um, having this sort of online conversation with someone, a learned person, and I was saying, talking about Swami Vivekananda, yeah. who used Vedanta philosophy, and I've got a book just up there on my shelf called uh, Practical Vedanta, mm -hmm. and Vivekananda's view was that understanding of Advaita Vedanta, the absolute unity, wasn't just a a spiritual consciousness that you develop, but it had to be have application in the way that you live in the world. And some of my correspondents say, no, that Vivekananda was wrong to do that because Advaita Vedanta isn't about worldly ethics, it's about transcendence. But I'm sure Vivekananda was right that he makes a point, he said, um, he's talking to an audience, it's a transcript, and he's saying, uh, Yes, we talk here about Vedanta, but I know you, you go outside here, this is a hundred years ago, I guess, and uh, <laughs> yeah. he says, and you see a person of a lower caste, and you say, don't come near me, 
he says, don't touch me because you'll contaminate me. And Vivekananda says, yes, how easy it is to talk glibly about Vedanta. How difficult it is for you to follow the least of its precepts. Right. So the same point that's being made is that spirituality and enlightenment, they're not just some ethereal, wishy-washy no. things that you talk about and you look very uh, transcendent in your flowing robes as you walk through. <laughs> a spiritual look on your face. It's about getting your hands dirty and finding out what problems people have and doing everything you can to help them. So my young friend who said to me, Hinduism is about being a good person, he was giving me a very profound instruction there. You know, that, uh, I thought about what he said afterwards and I thought, yeah, there's actually so much in that simple statement that at yeah. first seemed very bland. and, and Because, to, I mean, it's something I, I've always thought is to be good is, to, is hard. It's not easy to be good because it because uh, it, it, it's many times it's the path with most pain to you um, mm. because it's not in your benefit a lot of times to be good <laughs> and, and I think uh, by benefit well sorry it depends what you mean by benefit right. yeah yeah that's right I mean but it, it what it's like to do the right thing is all it's 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 not always easy. Because it, it might, there might be emotional attachments, there might be physical attachments. There's a bunch of other things at play, but we can intuit probably what is the right thing, um, especially if we're following some form of virtue ethics. Um, mm. But maybe to, to get to that virtue sometimes requires some sort of shakti dharma aspect to it, and, and and that I think is is I think the, the the import I get at least from the ethics of Krishna is that. We should be aspiring to these great virtue things, mm. but as long as you remain in the world and act in the world, yeah. there are the reality of the world cannot be ignored. Um, so, so you have to somehow engage with it. You can't separate, like you said earlier. You can't just go to the forest and be like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna step away from here." You have to do something in the world, and and this is part of the thing I think where where sometimes people love to, I think talk badly about karma as in like it's fatalistic, but it's also very empowering in the sense that I think what it says is it gives us a, a perspective that whatever we do, right, wrong, good, bad, there's consequences to everything. So even to do a good thing, there's going to be some consequence, there's some negative consequence that comes with it because it is inherent to action. So in, in that context, we, we have to accept whatever bad consequences, good consequences come from our actions. And to act in the world is to maintain that cycle of action and consequences. And I think it's important for us to keep doing that, right? Like if you step away, you're no longer part of doing loka If you're doing loka samgraha, you want to be part of that samgraha, you have to be willing to take on the, 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 the papa that might arise from it for the greater good of other people. It's kind of like the bodhisattva ideas, right? But if you do that action completely selflessly, there will yes. never be any karma. It's that is correct. Yes. If you do, I was thinking also, you know, the same point against studying Shaivism yeah. in the Shaiva Siddhanta Tamil Nadu, Tamil Shaivism, they talk about becoming, finding your Shiva identity, yeah. Shiva Rupa. So what is that Shiva Rupa? Shaiva Siddhanta is intensely devotional. Insists that Shiva is utterly benign, utterly loving. He mm -hmm. has only thoughts for your benefit at all. He's just 
full of love for every living being. So the argue there is that if you want to develop your Shiva Rupa, you want to not develop it, but find it, it's already there, yeah. uncover it, then you try and be like Shiva, you act like Shiva, you're absolutely benign to every living being, every situation, there's no sense of malice whatsoever, it's just purely benign. I think there's a verse in Mahabharata as well, Dharma is defined as, um, can I get my book down? Yeah, 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 please, please. This is one that me and my um, friend Hanuman Das, he, 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 runs a, he, he runs a charity called Go Dharmic, he works okay. in the city of London, but he, um, he, uh, he's also set up this charity and he's starting libraries and schools in India, he does feeding program for poor people there. Wow. Just on the basis that this is his spiritual, this is his sadhana there, and it's wonderful what he's doing. But we got this book here, and we found a few verses, and and this one is from the, again the uh, Shanti Parvan of Mahabharat, Sarvam Priyabhupagatam Dharmam Ahur Manishinaha Pashaitam Lakshana Desham Dharma 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 Yudhishthiraha. The wise say that dharma is whatever is based on love for all beings. This is the characteristic mark, the lakshana, that distinguishes dharma from adharma, yudhishthira. Really wonderful, isn't it? When you find yeah. these, when we were compiling this book, we find these things, have you seen this one? It makes you, you do think about them as you're walking around. I don't know what it's like in Los Angeles now, but it's pretty awful weather here. I got soaked twice on the walks today, and uh, I'm not really aware of it uh, because I'm thinking about things like that. And you think, this is, you asked me what attracted me to Hinduism, but when yeah. you see things like that, uh, it's not dogmatically ordering me, you must believe that yeah. Christ died. It's giving you sources of inspiration that can that can be transformatory in life and that's why I think when it comes back to teaching I want the students not just to learn what chapter that comes in and what it says right. and I want them to kind of go away and think about it when they're walking around and reflecting on how does this is this significant for my life and I found that's what I always found difficulty with uh, academic jobs I mean yes. you know, they're a job and you know, some people make cars and things that you have to do, but it wasn't kind of satisfying in the way that the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies allows me to pursue that kind of line of study. Yeah. Not in place of the academic rigour, but adding on to the academic rigour as well. It goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, to, to, I think that's the same thing I, I find a lot of times when I look through the, the scriptures in Again, the term even—it's too—it's too late in the term scripture. I, I, I don't know, like these these texts of, of of the tradition or whatever. Um, but when I look through them and read through a lot of them, you find yes, you'll find uh, some of it is it can be castus um, or or varnas. You can find some, you find that in Mahabharata and, and other places, but you also find that in conjunction with something so lofty and um inspiring and beautiful it's kind of a weird juxtaposition to kind of hold those two same contradictory things in the text but then i think when you step back and you take away the fact that mahabharata wasn't it's not a divinely inspired text right it's like in that sense it's not perfect 
it's not meant to be perfect and Ramayana is not meant to be perfect and and even the uh, Vedas are not meant to be perfect in the sense of their perfect morality this is not about perfection it's about condition the condition mm-hmm. of existence right and and the Vedas openings might be a way to get out of that condition of existence of of how we exist um, in our minds but the Mahabharata is about how to live in that world of condition yeah. and I think to have that it recognizes that there is casteism, there is bigotry, and there is treating people wrongly, and people in the text still do it. But at the same point, it's also getting like these lofty ideas and these characters changing over time. And you see that in the text itself. How how like for example, like the way they treated Karna was horrendous. The, the Pandavas treated him terribly. Mm-hmm. Duryodhana treated him well. But when they find out that he's their brother. I think what the text is also trying to tell you is these people that you might think are below you are like your brother. They're not just uh, some random person. You can't be treating like uh, a, a lower Varna or or Jati in that way because they're just like they might be connected to you in in the larger sense. I think you, you also cited that verse, didn't you, Vijayavinaya Sampadra? Yeah. Yeah. Which Vivekananda also quotes. Um, so you're in good company there. That um, <laughs> um, you know that casteism, if you like, or yeah. even gender oppression, is yeah. utterly antithetical to the Vedantic wisdom. The Vedantic wisdom is wisdom of unity and sameness, equality, whereas casteism is what the Shaivites would call Arnava Mala. It's essentially selfish, self-promoting, the right. narrow little individual. That's why it's Anu, it's Arnava. But I think it's an interesting point you made there, like why does the Gita, and I was thinking about this, and I'll yeah. put something on my Facebook page. I why saw that, does, I read that. Oh, did you? Why does it advocate Varna? Yeah. And I'd say, um, I was thinking about this, I think it's because what is the reason for it? What's the reason behind it is Loka Sangraham. In the time when Krishna was speaking, Varna Dharma promoted universal well-being for all people. Right. Now, nowadays, I don't think Varna Dharma, I don't know about California, probably not in LA, you don't have uh, a rigid four level division, do you? You don't have, no, it, it doesn't apply in the modern economic circumstances, but what still does apply is thinking about the well-being of the world. So in that time, well-being of the world through Varna Dharma and the stability of society they brought that allowed all people to flourish. So we find, using our intelligence, our integrity, of finding a way of promoting the well-being of all living beings, not through Varna Dharma now, that's passed away, but the Loka Sangraham Sampasyan is an eternal truth, and that's what we've got to just find a different way to do it. That's what I came to the conclusion of thinking about the details. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, and it just it, it popped in my head, and I, I thought about this before. You know, because in chapter two, Arjuna is that's one of his foremost uh, uh, argument points is you know, Varna Shankara will cause the the destruction of society and so on and so forth, right? The, the one thing I found interesting is. Those other queries that Krishna brought up, I mean, Arjuna brought up, Krishna dealt with. He didn't even talk about Varna except for one line in the rest of the Gita, which, you know, uh, Guna Karma Vibhagam, right? He, how he created the, 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 the Varna by Guna and Karma, right? And, yeah. and he doesn't mention it at all, the rest of the, the, the entire text. There's not a single conversation about Varna um, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Gita, even though Arjuna made at least 
seven to 10 stanzas, I think, talking just about the problem of having the breakdown of Varnas. I think what Krishna's point is that it really, if you can transcend the selfish desire that motivates your action, yeah. and all these discussions of Varna and what you're doing, it's not about that material concept, it's about doing your duty, what you have to do, what's right to do, but without selfishness. Right. And that, that spiritualizes all these sort of um, materialistic um, uh, concepts that, that are there. But I, I mean, I think it's a self-evident truth that, um, well, a truth of the Upanishads, that um, factionalism, dare I say, even nationalism, yeah. are, Antithetic, uh, you know, uh, casteism, gender discrimination are antithetical to the Upanishadic vision. You right. know, that's you probably know in the uh, Shanti Parvan again, there's a, uh, a passage called the Sulabhajanak Samvad where there's a female ascetic. Yes. Yeah, I think it's chapter 308 of the uh, Shanti. Sulabha goes to visit Janaka and he, he asks a Kazya, Whose are you? Yeah bones you in other words and she says to him then um i'd heard that you were a spiritually elevated right. person. i think you're a little elevated but because you're still viewing people from that materialistic perspective therefore you've got uh, a good way to go right. yet it makes that point that that sort of gender discri gender-based discrimination is antithetical to the spiritual vision that she's been taught by her guru panchashika yeah so i think that's a, a, an important point to, to, to bear in mind there, that this casteism, it's not only not Hindu, it's antithetical to Hinduism. It's ideas. No, I, I mean, a part, I, I mean, I agree in part. I think, like, the casteism, I mean, again, Varna and Jati are different necessarily from caste, because I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a big sociological difference. Uh, Varna itself is is part of the, the Hindu system, but what that means can change, right? Just like like um, you know, like uh, uh, it, what they say, Dharma changes based upon desha, kala, titi, right? Uh, time, situation, place. So Varna can change. The definition of what Varna means in uh, different ages can change. But uh, casteism has no place in in I think in in the larger Hindu structure, even though some of the Dharma shastras are are pretty. Intense about the Pratiloma and Anuloma, like marrying up in a caste or marrying down in a caste, and all this. Like, but again, I don't know if it's very, if it's supposed to be proscriptive or descriptive. I'm not sure. And this is the difficulty in, in these texts is, is trying to determine their actual historic value in, in if they ever were practiced, right? And these might be again things that existed in someone's book as opposed yeah. to what they lived in the world. I think. You, you, you're faced with a dilemma, you read something in a Dharma Shastra like Manu, Jagibalki yeah. and you think that doesn't accord with my sense of morality and justice, yeah. that a woman should serve an unfaithful husband as if he was a god. Yeah. It's unjust. So what do you give up? Do you put aside the book or do you put aside your inherent sense of virtue? It's the yeah. book. I, it's interesting because I did some of the course with a group of Hindus at the local, well, at some of the temples around right. here, and I got passages from the Manu Smriti for everybody to read. And some people were saying, "Who is this Manu anyway? You know, he's not, uh, he's not an authority." And then yeah. one woman said, ah, 
this is a really evil book, she said. It's talking about Manu Smith. Yeah. And another woman said, no, it's, not. it's just a bloke who was having trouble with his wife or something like that. <laughs> you know, but nobody, I asked, like, who regards this text, Manu Smithy, as an authority in their religious and ethical life? Everyone said, no. Even we talked about Ram, and we talked about the Ramayan, the banishment yeah. of Sita after, uh, after Ram's recovered. Uh, and... Um, I was really surprised by this because there were a number of people in the group that said um, Ram made this terrible mistake there. This is yeah. something wrong that Ram did. And it came into my mind. I said, I can never imagine a Christian group saying, Jesus got that wrong, didn't he? Yeah. A Muslim group saying, oh, Muhammad really uh, made a mistake with that uh, part of the Quran. And another man said, well, I think it just demonstrates that Ram was human as well as divine. And because he was human, therefore he made he, he made an error in interpreting Dharma with, with, with Sikha. It just struck me then as uh, remarkable and, and, and quite wonderful that people would feel that they have the freedom. These were devout Hindus yeah, well, yeah. in the temple for to learn Hinduism, that they felt that freedom to... Um, take a text that might have been regarded and just say, no, I'm not having that. I, I, it's offensive. I'm not taking that. And even the Ramayan, you know, the the, the sacred figure of Ram, they can yeah. say, no, I don't agree with what Ram did then. I, well, it's uh, wonderful. I think it's fantastic. I mean, for me, again, like the Valmiki Ramayana is very interesting to me too, because I think the text itself, um, you know, I think there's only like two or three places in the text where Rama is connected as Vishnu or God himself. The rest of the time, he, like, there's at the end after in, I think it's Yuddha Kanda after after he kills Ravana, he Brahma comes down right, you know, and, yeah. and it, it speaks to him, and and then Brahma says, "Do you know who you are?" And then yeah. Rama's response is. I am a man, the son of Dasharatha, Rama. Exactly. And then yeah, that's his, he doesn't say, no, I'm Vishnu. And then, you, then Brahma has to remind him, no, you're not that person. You're actually Narayana, the, the Lord of the universe. And it's it's interesting to me because I think the reason Valmiki part, and this is me playing psychoanalyst in some sense and totally unfounded, but I think the reason Valmiki wrote Rama in that sense of him being human and not knowing it was the text itself is not only supposed to be for you to engage with, but to also see, again, the flaws that we, even a perfect man, Narottamarama, uh, is still a flawed person, makes bad decisions, because you can't have perfection in the world. You have to have, a, the, like, this, this, you can only strive for it, and you're going to fail, no matter how, how great of a person you are, because you're going to have the conflicting dharmas. I think that's right, and I... I... Again, years ago, I wrote a paper on the divinity of Ram, suggesting reasons exactly along the lines you've just spoken of as to why Valmiki tends to play down the divinity of Ram. As you know, it's there in the Balakand, it's there in the Balakand yeah. uh, as well. He, he makes the point that Ram is Narayan. But I think he's presenting Ram as the ideal human being. And if we were to see him constantly in his divine identity, yeah. then we bow down before him and say, look what the gods can do, how, you know, they're so much greater than us. Yeah. He's a, a human being, we can use him as a role model and an exemplar. And as you say, all humans, however good a role model they are, they make, uh, they make mistakes. Krishna, by contrast, is not an exemplar. 
his divinity is uh, absolute and constantly restated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We know when he does like Ras Leela and things like that, the dancing and that, that's just a divine play. It's not an example. Ram is, uh, is different from that. But then again, you take, um, I'm just looking over my shoulder there, Tulsidas, Ram yeah. Charitmanas, which I've got over on the shelf. There. Such a, it's the same story, essentially, but it's such a different emphasis, isn't it? It's totally different. Dripping with devotion. Yeah. And I, think, I think actually I've discussed, gone through Ramayana with Hindus, and what most Hindu groups know isn't Valmiki. It's Tulsidas. Valmiki is much more morally ambiguous, much more you, like even the conversation that Rama has with Vali after he kills him or after yeah. he shoots him. It's, it's such a. It's a, it's a such a damning conversation in some sense, right? Because you know, because Rama does tell him, "You're just an animal. I can treat you this way." Um, and 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 Vali's response is actually way more noble, right? And 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 how he how he approaches it again, it shows. This is what I think is amazingly fascinating: is that the text itself and the story itself is about the intricacy of human action. And this is not like it's not a text where it's divinely inspired or is perfect again you don't view it that way you view it as a way to this is how you learn about uh, divinity this is how you learn about perfection like mahabharata like you said krishna is constantly known as god but only by a few people right everyone else thinks he's a charlatan a trickster a fraud but a few handful of people in the text are like no this this guy is is definitely the real deal but he knows it himself krishna he acts that way through the text Rama oh, just and it's, it's such a contrast. And, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Where, well, I was just going to say, Krishna's never in any difficulty. Prahasaneva says in the Gita, smiling a little bit yeah. as you go through all these trials and tribulations. Ram, though, is, is, is uh, lamenting his distress. He's, he's very uh, human in that sense, isn't he? Except in Tulsi Das. Tulsi yeah. Das explains all of this. He's just acting the part, but he's yeah. always transcendent. I, I think it's nice to um, juxtapose, if that's the right word, between Valmiki and Tulsidas. Oh, cool. Because it, it's similar to, to because I think Valmiki's, I mean, Tulsi's Rama is very similar to Krishna in Mahabharata, in the sense of, it, it, the way I see it is, these are both, this is God acting, knowing he's acting, so he's playing around and enjoying the action. Well, Rama in Ramayana, in Valmiki, is God getting lost in in in, in the role of being a human being, and to the mm -hmm. point where, like even like when he laments for Sita when she yeah. got, it's so beautiful, right? It's it, oh. it, it, it takes away from that beauty if you know, okay, he's just playing this role as opposed to saying that he here he's he's running around through the the forest. So every little thing reminds him of Sita. He's crying all the time. It's not, and it's not the toxic masculinity that people think about, like as you think about Rama nowadays, like this real powerful, strong guy. He was very in touch with his emotions and loving and caring. And it's a different concept of masculinity, right? Even the relationship with Krishna and Arjuna, it's it's a bromance for sure, but it's much more. Um, they weep for each other. They they they, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's such a deeply intricate relationship where it's. It's not seen as being unmanly to 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 say love to each other and express it. it, it it's interesting. I mean, I, I won't find it now, but the love, the expressions of love between Ram and Sita are, are exemplary. And um, sometimes Hinduism, 
it's, it seems like a little bit um, aloof and, yes. and, and, and withdrawn and unemotional, even a bit harsh, maybe Buddhism and Jainism as well. But when you read Ram's expressions of love for Sita and Sita's love for Ram, we, we picked out those verses because I think we wanted to kind of redress the view that the intimacy and love between the husband and wife is somehow antithetical to spirituality. And in fact, it, it would show that even in the most spiritual of relationships, that dearness and love and closeness and admiration for one another and nurturing of one another, it, it, it isn't antithetical to spirituality no. at all. And interesting, Kashmir Shaivism, um, Abhinavagupta says that when you feel that love, for another living being when you, you you feel that sensation of love which goes beyond the normal that in fact is you coming a little bit closer to your shiva rupa the shiva rupa is imbued with anand and when you feel the anand of a love for another living being that's actually a spiritual sensation it's a sign that the shiva rupa is a little bit more manifest than it was so many things aren't there you know you come across and you you uh, you find and you you think about them all the time. It's a constant source of inspiration. For me. It, it, it is. I mean, it is for me too. I mean, it's like I try to read as much. I'm, I'm just because one of my colleagues on this uh, Mirror Media is uh, this, this guy named Ratchet, and he is very involved in Kashmiri Shaivism. So I was not very knowledgeable about it until I met him and we started talking about it. So I've slowly started getting a little more reading about Kashmiri Shaivism. I'm really fascinated with Abhinavagupta. I haven't read his uh, commentary in Gita yet. I really want to have a sense because like, oh. I, I, it must be different from someone like Ramanuja or Madhua or even Shankara who 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 say Krishna is God himself? Well, Abhinava is much more Shaivai oriented. So I would love to see how he imbues his Gita with with that uh, and how he does that. Because even like I've read Yaneshwari of uh, of Yaneshwar, and that's a beautiful. Uh, I've never I haven't read it in the, in the native because I don't know um, Marathi, yeah. but but it's beautiful too. It's it's a, just a beautiful text. I think with, and I've made this point about, I said before about Shaivism, the neglect of Shaivism perhaps yeah. is for me because um, Abhinavagupta and Shema Raj, you know, they give a, a view of Advaita, it's, it, it's Shiva Advaita, yeah. but it's very different from Shankara Advaita in as much as the, although all things are Shiva, it's yeah. not like Brahman, Brahman is in the uh, Advaita Vedanta view is rather passive. Yes. And, and, and the variety of the word we perceive is just our mistake. Yeah. In fact, in, in Kashmir Shaivism, it's in, yes, everything is Shiva, but Shiva choosing to manifest himself in the varieties of the world. So the world is real. Even our individuality is real. It's just Shiva choosing to take on these individual forms. So in other words, you know, when you contrast Shankaracharya's Advaita with Abhinavagupta's Advaita, it's again a really interesting interaction between two views, which you, you don't get if you leave out Shaivism. And I was saying, writing the introduction, I was saying that um, I know Richard King, wonderful book on Hindu philosophy, but he says I've left out Shaivism there. Even yeah. this little book here, which is actually a very good read. It's uh, Sue Hamilton. I don't know if you come across these. Okay, I see that. Yeah. Very short introduction by Oxford University Press. She says at the beginning, oh, I can't include Shaivism in it. 
And I, she says, well, it's too complicated and this is just a short book. But I do think that if you leave out Shaivism, it's like, um, sometimes I think of it as like a, an apple pie. You've got a big slice, perhaps mm. the best slice is, is gone and you haven't got the whole complete picture. So I do think that the Shaivism adds tremendously to that. So why do you think that Shaivism has not been uh, represented properly within the, either the academic setting or the, the mass understanding? Everyone loves to talk about the Gita, but they don't talk about Shiva Gita, right? Which is just as interesting in the, in the Mahabharata. Interesting. I was just writing about this the other day, actually. I, I think that there's a number of reasons. One, of course, is the linguistic reasons that the Shaiva texts, the Agamas, they're written in Sanskrit, but most of the versions of it are in Granta or Tamil scripts now. So North Indians don't have access to them. And a lot of the literature of Shaivism is in vernacular language, like the Veera Shaiva Vachanas in Kannada. Yeah. So that's one, one reason. Also, the fact is that these texts, some of the Agamas have never been published. They exist only on palm leaf manuscripts. There's a lot of work going on there, great work being done to translate those into digital form. I've also thought it, it, it's something to do with the pattern of British imperialism because mm. British imperialism was much more dominant I think in the north of India than in the south of India and western scholars yeah they quite often are fairly well myself I'm not bad at Sanskrit but Tamil I don't know at all so I, I, I can't I find it difficult to get access to the to the actual texts so I think that's a, there's a number of reasons why that also perhaps Shaivism is a little bit apart from it in as much as you know the Vedantic schools be it Madhva or Shankara they disagree like anything with one yeah. another but they both use Gita, Brahmasutras and, um, and Upanishads as their yeah. sources Whereas the Shaivites, they're saying, well, yeah, they're okay, but the real higher knowledge comes from the Argamas, and the Argamas aren't known outside that, so Shaivism is a little bit of a, it kind of interacts, it's definitely Hindu, but it's a little bit, you know, I'm thinking in Venn diagram terms, you know, yeah. so they overlap a lot, but it's also, it's got its own distinctive identity, and but I think it's such a, and I'm really enjoyed writing this course that I've been doing over the last year because I've learned so much about it and it's really filled in a lot of gaps that I had in my understanding of uh, Indian religion and the whole range of ideas. Really, really stimulating. I've got a great job, haven't I? <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, it's a, it, it's one of the things I, uh, after I, after I retire, maybe in like 10, 15 years, I want to just devote myself full time to this kind of stuff. I really enjoy it. Um, mm -hmm. But my, my full-time job kind of prevents me from doing that right now. <laughs> Work's terrible, isn't it? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> work. <laughs> so, I mean, now, ha have you had time to spend with the Anugita? I mean, not the Anugita, but the Shiva Gita in uh, the Mahabharata at all? Yeah, I've, I've done those passages in part of the course. Um, it's in the Anushasana, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's in, very interesting, those passages, because they are... Um, well, Shiva in the Mahabharata narrative, he interacts with Vishnu. He comes to the fore sometimes, then Vishnu comes to the fore. Yeah. And there's that passage, you know, the nocturnal journey when Krishna and Arjun go to Kailas. Yeah. And Arjun sees the offerings he made to Krishna that morning, and they're right by the side of Shiva. And it suggests a kind of... Um, uh, syncretism between yeah. 
Rupam and Shaivism. But when you get onto the uh, Shiva Gita later on, the, um, the, the thousand names of Shiva, it's definitely Shaivite, isn't it? And yeah. Vishnu, as Krishna, is shown to be um, a secondary deity. Right. Shiva is the one absolute deity. And uh, Vishnu is, uh, is secondary to Shiva. And that's the vision of the, um, the Shiva Quran as well. That Shiva is the absolute. It's a, yeah. once, you know, it, it, but it, it, it puts Shiva as the one supreme deity, not one of a trinity, not uh, Vishnu Shiva being equal. Shiva is absolute. Vishnu Brahma are secondary to Shiva. Right, right. It's, it's I mean, it's it's, it's fascinating because in in the, again in that in 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 the Shanti part, you have the Nararaniya, which is that section where. Narada goes to Shweta, Shweta Dvipa and then sees, you know, he can't even see Vishnu because he's too bright. He has to. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> and, and, and that's where, like, the, I guess the Agamas of the Vaishnavite Agamas all trace their origin to that, right? The Pancharathar system. That is, yeah, from, from that. I mean, so in your, in, in your research, have you. Is there an origin like that to the uh, to the Shaiva uh, the Shaiva Agamas Shaiva Agamas? I think they're all like that in a sense. Sorry, could, what what are you asking again? Oh no, what I was asking was basically like the 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 Vaishnavite Agamas tra uh, trace their origin and concepts and theory to the Nairaniya section and, uh -huh. and other other Pancharatras. Uh, uh, all the Agamas come from that. Now the Shaivite. Agamas, is there a, a similar location that we can probably place them with? No, they they uh, they claim to be um, spoken by uh, Shiva is the speaker of them. He reveals them firsthand to rishis. He, he don't trace back beyond Shiva. Even the Shiva Sutras, which was from the ninth century, yeah. Vasubhukta, who produced it, claims that it was a revelation from Shiva that was on a rock carved. And he didn't write it himself, so they go back just to um, just as far as Shiva. When you mentioned the Narayanir, actually, it, it struck me a verse again from this little book I've got. Um, here it is, one seven one. This is from that Pancharatra one, which is interesting. Again, yeah, it's. I'll just read the English translation. Sure. And and it's um, it, the question is why does Krishna worship Shiva? And he, he, Krishna or Narayan replies, these rules must be respected. And for this reason, I offer my worship to Shiva because it's part of the, 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 the tradition. One who knows him, knows Shiva, knows myself. And one who knows myself knows him as well. Rudra and Narayan are but one being manifesting two different ways, manifest in the world, and present in all actions performed. So that's from the Narayaniya, which, as you say, is a yeah. clearly a Vaishnava work coming from the Pancharatra uh, yeah. Agamic tradition. But they say there that Vishnu and, and Rudra are, are, are one and the same. There's no distinction between them. So it's an interesting uh, line of discussion. It, are we, are yeah. we, I'm getting a bit exhausted. Oh, I appreciate that. No, I, I know you, you have a lot going on. So um, I just want to thank you for your time. If you have anything else that you want to say or, you know, uh, uh, talk about or promote, uh, uh, please. No, uh, the only thing, the conclusion I've come to from hours of lying in hospital beds, uh, etc. Uh, as I say, that's one of the, I find it 
uh, not in got got so much energy as I used to have. But the thing is, uh, that struck me is this idea of the mala, yeah, which covers up and how to get rid of it, and that that practice of um, being utterly benign to all living beings, following the first three verses of chapter sixteen. Of, of, of the Gita, that's the very essence of spirituality. As I've seen so many spiritual movements in which there's competition, there's selfishness, there's greed comes in. I'd say again, you can't be spiritual while you've got that consciousness of what's in it for me. Right. Me, 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 man. That's the antithesis. I've seen also sometimes yoga schools and things like that, people looking very uh, spiritual and ethereal but if it's not giving 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 doing for others then it, it doesn't capture the essence of spirituality another verse i said found in the shiva puran which said talks about shiva radhana worship of shiva it says um, if you bring happiness to other living beings and free them from fear that's the worship of shiva right. just as a father is pleased when his sons and grandsons are made happy so Shiva is pleased if you can bring joy to other living beings and and, and, and that's what Shiva Radhana is that's the true bhakti right I interact with you and with everybody else if I have words my deeds bring joy into their life relieve them from suffering then that's bhakti and that's also the path to jnana and that's the kind of conclusion I've kind of finally uh, come to from my from my sickbed but you, you, yeah and that's what erodes the mala that enables the, the the shiva rupa the light within to come forth the knowledge that comes forth it's not from out there Sorry. no no that's a fantastic way to to end the conversation you know I, w I would love to have talked about Davy a little bit more but we can maybe do that some other point if that's something that yeah, you're yeah you know, yeah um, but thank you for your time, uh, Professor. I really uh, appreciate it. Uh, I know it's been, uh, you've had a, a, a past, a tough, busy few weeks. Um, but thank you for your time again. And uh, I look forward to talking to you at some point in the future. Yeah, thanks very much, Mukunda. I've enjoyed chatting to you. It's been really good, actually. I used to live in Los Angeles, actually. Oh, you did? Where? Oh, God, I can't remember now. I used to work on... Uh... Is it Sepulveda? Yeah, 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 yeah. So on the, on the west side, near near like Santa Monica or something like that? Santa Monica, yeah, Santa Monica Pier and then yeah. I lived there a couple of years. I worked in uh, um, proofreading and editing in a publishing company up in there. Uh, oh, wow. You had a very, uh, a, a very interesting <laughs> career. <laughs> or, never uh, had a problem. Oh, I just do a bit. I got enough money then, and then I came back to England. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, nice weather in Los Angeles at the moment. Isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's 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 nice and sunny. Yes, is that Yeah, bloody miserable over here in England. Why get wet and cold? But anyway, it's part for the course, I think, for you guys. <laughs> All right. All Great right. To see you. you too. Take care, sir. And you. Namaste. Namaste.